This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We love the opportunity to talk to folks who have uh, been in in a situation where they've needed help uh, from Sands & Associates and gone to Blair's office and and talked to somebody and figured this out. And and that's what we're going to do right now. We've got Adam, who's a former client of Sands & Associates, on the line with us, uh, who's going to share his story with us. Adam, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. It's so important to give a voice and emotion to someone who's striving towards that financial fresh start that we talk about so often here on the show using a consumer proposal. Uh, so just know, if you have any hesitation at all, Adam, uh, you you never know how many people you're giving assistance to by telling your story, and we we just so appreciate this opportunity. Well, I hope I can. Uh, I, I hope I can help in, in any way I can to somebody that's actually listening and thinking about doing it. It's the best decision of my life. That's great, Adam. Oh, good. And, and yeah, Adam, it's almost since we started doing this show, it's really the past clients. I have people almost every week coming and saying, you know what, I saw myself in that situation. And to hear somebody to go through it and validate, you know, this is a, a good solution for folks, you know, that that's just, just excellent. Um, so Adam, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the situation th- that brought you to Sands and Associates. Obviously, respecting your confidentiality will only, you know, disclose as much or as little as, as you as you feel like, but just wondering what you were facing, what life was like when you when you picked up the phone to give us a call. Well, uh, I, I can take the story back to 1994 mm. when my then-girlfriend, now wife, was in a car accident and became permanently injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were high school sweethearts, um, and we started collecting debt in the form of prescriptions because mm-hmm. at that time we didn't have any coverage. I was a, uh, a lonely little line cook at the time, and... <laughs> Uh, and she was uh, in school to be a legal secretary, so we had no medical coverage, and her parents weren't supporting her, and so I took that upon myself. But what that did was put us behind the eight ball from the very beginning of our relationship. Wow. And yeah. And, and since 1994, that's obviously a, a long time. And, you know, so many folks that, that I meet, you know, the right decision was obviously you buy the prescriptions and you deal with the consequences later. Exactly. Yep. So, you know, you always try and, you know, it, it eventually turned into multiple credit cards, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul back and forth and with, with, with credit cards trying to keep that, uh, keep everybody happy and keep prescriptions going. And then, and then of course, um, young and, young and silly, uh, or about young and dumb, um, you know, you sit and go, okay, I have a little bit of extra credit. I need to go on a vacation or I want to go for a nice dinner or I want to do X and which then puts you further behind the hole. So about 10 years ago, we decided, okay, we're going to get out, of, get out of the hole. Okay. And with my wife being, my wife, well, probably more like 12 years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage 4 endometriosis. Oh, yeah. So yet again, uh, she in 10 years, uh, sorry, in 12 years, she had 10 surgeries and behind eight ball again and all this. Uh, it never worked out. Mm-hmm. And we finally came to the point... Uh, to, to a point where we sat there and went, enough's enough. 
suck it up, let's get this dealt with, let's see what we can do to get this dealt with, and what are our best options. And we searched and found you. We then had a friend that was go- that went through a similar situation a long, long time ago and had dealt with you and said they were great. So we went. Oh, good. Yeah. How long do you think your your actual search went on for, Adam, Where you from when you went, okay, we have to do something about this. We can't live this way anymore. We need to take some action. What kind of period of time was that? Uh, about about six months. Okay. Uh, about six months because there was a lot of procrastination involved in that decision-making process because of feeling embarrassed, because of feeling uh, you didn't do what you were supposed to do in life. You're not supposed to go into debt. And here's the crazy thing, Adam, just from an outsider here, having just heard the first part of your story, none of the things that got you into the situation where you were in debt to a a significant amount was your fault. Like, not one piece of that was. No. Like, with with my wife, we also went, like, so with my wife, we also tried to get her on disability, but... Mm-hmm. We found out very shortly that uh, because she hadn't worked for four years full-time contributing to CPP, she didn't qualify. And because mm-hmm. even though, even when I was a lonely line cook at the time, um, I made too much money for provincial disability. So the, pro- the province said, hey, you guys should get divorced and then she'll get on disability. Oh, my gosh. Talk about yep. falling through the cracks, right? Oh, yes. You know, pe- Absolutely. You know, some Americans might think, oh, my God, there's no bankruptcies or proposals in Canada because of medical stuff because you guys have coverage. But no, <laughs> you know, your hospital is covered. But as you were saying, the prescriptions, you're, you're not the first person who, you know, they have to decide, do I go into debt or do I get prescriptions? Yep. And, you know, you got to get the prescriptions. Physiotherapy four days a week, mm-hmm. you know, lots of extensive, yeah, no, not, not all covered. Can you describe uh, the... This the situation the day that you went into Sands and Associates and sat down and started to explain your situation and started getting different answers that you'd never possibly realized you were going to get in terms of how to deal with this debt. Can you describe what that was like? Uh, well, sitting in the waiting room, very nervous. You feel like you're going to be judged. Mm-hmm. You feel uh, you've, you're totally uncomfortable. Uh, the next um, thing is when you start talking to somebody, uh, the feeling of not being judged, the person's there to help you, uh, just listening to the, just listening to the situation and going, okay, let's figure this out together and do the best we can with the situation that you have. Uh, And being respected. You you weren't being talked down to, you weren't being belittled, you weren't being in any way degraded that, that you're in this situation. It's all about help. And how can we help? Must have been a huge weight off of both of your shoulders. It absolutely was. Yeah, and it, it's interesting, Adam, the words that, that you use about, you know, the apprehension of coming to the first meeting, that's just so on point to just about everyone that comes in the door. And we try not to let someone sit in the waiting room for long because we know they're so nervous, they're so worried, they don't know if they're walking into, you know, again, the most judgmental meeting of their life. And we know it's the opposite, but, you know, <laughs> until, you, until you've met with us, that that's the case because, you know, what I firmly believe is, you know, anybody is just, you know, a medical incident or, you know, some very bad life event away from needing our help. It might be me someday. So, um, you know, you need to, to approach it with that situation. There's no above or, or below a person. It's you're on the same level to help them. 
Yes, uh, I, I live my life by the golden rule, and mm. Sans definitely lives by the golden rule for everybody that we dealt with. That's yeah. nice. What was there anything that surprised you in your process with Sans and 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 working out the details and and then getting that fixed amount that you were going to be able to handle to pay each month? Uh, the, what I was surprised with was how you well I don't know exactly how to describe it. Basically, we gave all of our information. A letter was written, and the creditors came back and said yes. I thought there'd be a lot more. A lot more steps involved, yeah. a, a lot more negotiation, a lot more uh, effort needed to resolve the issue. It was much faster, much simpler, much more at ease than I thought it was going to be. And that, and that's great, Adam, because I was going to say, you know, I ex- explain proposals on this show a lot, but I'm so curious from your perspective, you know, how, how you would lay it out. And, and that's just great. You gave your information, we wrote an offer, and the offer was accepted. That's in a nutshell how a proposal works. Um, and I, I tell this to, to people who haven't done one before, it's 95% success rate. Our first offer is accepted 95%, and 99% of the time we get to a deal. So sometimes we have to negotiate, but it's very rarely we don't come to a really positive outcome here, and, you know, proof's in the pudding. Exactly. I don't know what you guys do on your side with that letter going out to the creditors <laughs> and, all that, but, and what negotiations happen on your side, but yeah. from my experience... I, I hand deliver I, it with a crowbar, but no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Would you say, um, or could you talk a little bit about what your experience, the impact that your experience has had on your financial habits and attitudes and, and how you go about uh, your world today, Adam? Uh, just for, for me, it's keeping a closer eye on the budget, mm-hmm. uh, completely close eye, um, Scrooge-like on the budget. <laughs> you, you really pay attention to what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, and with that said, I'm actually in the process of uh, taking a look at being an entrepreneur. Okay. And see, yeah. <laughs> so so it, it's come into great, uh, the, everything that I've learned and every, all the help I got from SANS has gone into um, taking a look in, at, at all the financials that are involved and being very, very strict and very methodical about what I'm going to do because I don't want to end up in that place I was that's so good to hear because when folks sometimes embark on an entrepreneurial plan or an idea, um, the the methodology on how to stay on track and how to keep uh, costs in line sometimes goes out the window because you're just so darn excited about what it is you're you're about to embark on or as you're embarking on it. So what a, what a great, uh, good advice for folks who are thinking in a similar way or, or wanting to take on something new and interesting. Absolutely. I, I, just, I, I would just suggest anybody that's trying to do it, just think about all the people that were very successful in being an entrepreneur. It's all about dollars and cents. It's about mm-hmm. pennies. Yeah. If if you keep an eye on the pennies and you keep an eye on your stats, you should be good. Some uh, some very successful people have said uh, exactly that, Adam. You pay attention to the pennies and the nickels and the dimes and the quarters will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And you're a very Absolutely. good company when you when you <laughs> saying something like that. What about for the person who's listening to you tell your story, uh, who's in a similar situation as you were? What kind of advice? What kind of uh, encouragement would you give them? Uh, take a deep breath 
and step. Uh, there is nothing that's going to happen going to Sands and Associates mm-hmm. that would be detrimental to your financial well-being. Uh, you're you're in a you're in a space right now where you're trying to keep your head above water, and all Sands is doing is storing you a life preserver to help with that. I love uh, I love the fact that you described your experience as uh, when you sat down with the with the folks at Sands and Associates uh, that you got empathy. There was no judgment. Uh, you were respected. Uh, those are such important um, important things to remind people before they walk mm-hmm. in the door. Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. If any of this is resonating with you, or you f- you're thinking that you're in a similar situation like Adam was, or or or, or fearful that you may be, uh, or that the situations we talked about feel familiar, Sands and Associates so easy to get a hold of them. Uh, the website is sands-trustee.com. So easy to get a hold of them. Their one eight hundred number six six one thirty thirty to book that free consultation, and to find an office near you. And more importantly, just like Adam, start living that debt-free life. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to start a series, which is kind of nice. Uh, This is the first episode, segment of the series. This one is uh, Bankruptcy Myths. And uh, we're going to to cover... uh, Well, why don't you explain how we're going to do it? Yeah, we're just going to go through. We'll probably get to, I don't know, maybe three to five today or so. But um, I wanted to just try to outline, you know, when people come in the door to see me, they've got mm-hmm. a bunch of, you know, really burning questions on their mind, sometimes a bunch of preconceived notions uh, about what's going to happen to them, how public it's going to be, how difficult it's going to be. Um, so I think if in today's segment we can just start to, you know, peel back the layers a little bit of the complexity and say, you know, here are the facts. What you've heard, there might be an element of truth to it, but for the most part, uh, the facts are a little bit different than what you assume. I think it's so important because we are we we sort of make up our belief systems based on a whole bunch of things including stuff that we've heard from people uh and uh and the rules then compared to what the rules are today that it uh, could be the biggest difference, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Bankruptcy law changes over time. That's a big factor. Now, it's also the case we're very close to the U.S., and bankruptcy law in the U.S. is completely different. You know, it's it's night and day different. You've got bankruptcy attorneys, you know, advertising bankruptcies for 300 bucks. It's a competitive market. It's, it's just so different um, than it is here. Um, but to know Canadian laws, that's what's going to govern you in Canada here. And I think, you know, something I've, I've come to learn over the last, especially since um, uh, in the last year or so, is how much we're in influenced mm-hmm. by what goes on in the United States, yep. uh, whether it be our television, what we're reading, or 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 or, uh, or things that other countries do and how they impact us. And it's just really important to pay attention to this stuff. Yeah. So key myths and misconceptions that people have about bankruptcy. And there's lots of fear and uncertainty, like you said, around bankruptcy, just the word itself. It, it's mm-hmm. an old word, right? Yeah. It's been around for a very, very long time. And... Um, yeah, it's a tough one. So good. I'm glad we're doing this segment. Okay, so let's take away some of them. Uh, everybody's going to know. Everybody is going to know that I'm in 
personal bankruptcy or I've taken my company into bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, public admission of failure, public shaming, okay, when is the flogging scheduled, I'll show up, you know, all these things. Um, Almost everyone that comes into my office, if they don't ask this in the first meeting, by the third meeting, they want to make sure, okay, so who's going to know about this? Yeah. And the answer is, for the vast majority of cases, 99% of the cases, there's no notice in the newspaper. Okay, so if you see a bankruptcy notice, that's less than 1% of cases. It very rarely happens for the vast majority of cases where someone goes into bankruptcy, unless they've got huge assets that, you know, we have to sell. uh, There's no notice that goes in the newspaper. There's no public notification of anything. What happens when somebody files for bankruptcy is obviously the trustee is aware of it. I have to notify all of their creditors that they're no longer getting paid and the person's aware, but that's about it. You know, it's even possible for a husband or a wife to go into bankruptcy and the other person not to be aware of it. Which is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And are it's we not what we recommend, but it is no, possible. <laughs> that's right. It may not be the best foundation for a good marriage, but it is possible. Yeah, you know, people are always very concerned, you know, does my employer have to know, for right. example? Right, absolutely. That create some perception in the employer's mind of whether you're responsible or not, even if the factors are completely outside of your control. Yeah. But the answer there is the only reason I would ever contact an employer is if you had already been sued and your wages were already being taken, and I'm the person that can stop it. Got it. So in general, it's a positive thing when someone says, okay, and you're going to get me my wages back? Yeah, I have to tell your employer. I have to send some notification, but we get you your wages back. You know, your employer has already seen this lawsuit that's come through and says that you're a bad person for not paying your debt. So at least this is going to show, well, now you've legally taken some steps to deal with things. Excellent. So in general, the only people that have to know about a bankruptcy are the people that find out about it. There's no one superfluous. You need to know if you've got a debt. You need to know if you're the trustee. You need to know if you're the person. But otherwise, your friends, your neighbors, your family don't need to be informed. Excellent. And there, and there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to be screaming that out to them, uh, like your house being sold, you know, like yeah. all of those things, right? Yeah, these are very good questions because it's also, there's some cultural biases that, you know, we have a, a lot of folks who maybe have immigrated from China or mm. from Korea or different Asian countries. And I know from speaking with these clients that bankruptcy in those jurisdictions is completely different. It is very public. It is literally a red tag is placed on your front door. Wow. Someone enters your property, puts a red tag on your furniture. It's, it's literally the scarlet letter. Wow. Nothing like that exists in Canada, but someone from that environment, you know, automatically assumes, well, this must be a very publicly shaming type of thing. Absolutely. And it's really not. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah. Everything will be gone. I won't have anything left. Yeah, and most people think that. You know, they even hesitate to come in to see a bankruptcy trustee because they think they're going to walk out, not even with the shoot, with the shirt on their back yeah. type of thing. Um, simplest way to say it is most people keep all of their assets through a bankruptcy. And the reason for that is theoretically when you apply for a bankruptcy or when you file for bankruptcy, you declare all the assets that you have and theoretically those assets have to go to pay your debts. But the provincial legislation or provincial government has stepped in and every province across Canada is similar and they've said there's certain exemptions. There are certain assets that just by virtue of us wanting to have a good dignified society that some people should never lose. They can never be taken from you and if you file for bankruptcy these exemptions kick in that usually protect just about everything that you've got. Okay. So let's talk about the categories of exemptions. Yeah. So first off it's household goods and furniture. So I'm always asked you know are you going to show up at my door, inventory my furniture, cart out my TV, my computer 
computer, my bicycle? The answer is no. So government doesn't want that and nobody wants that. Really, I wouldn't be doing this job. That's what I had to do. Um, but what you have to do is just take an inventory of what you have at home and you do an inventory based on a garage sale value. So I'm not asking you replacement costs for your beautiful couch or a computer or whatever. I'm saying if you put this out on your lawn for a garage sale or if you put an ad up on Craigslist, what's someone going to pay you for your furniture? The province says you're allowed up to $4,000 at garage sale value. I've been a practicing trustee for more than 10 years. I've never once had a client who has more than $4,000 if we're using a garage sale or a Craigslist value. Yeah, because we know you, uh, selling selling something in a garage sale, you get absolutely nothing for it compared oh, yeah. to its value. Well, people bargain for the entertainment. I've been there with my mom bargaining a coffee mug from a dollar down to 25 cents, and I'm like, oh my God, you can afford the 75 cents, Mom. Exactly. But it's the thrill of the chase, right? So, oh. But th that's the lens to use. It's right. nobody wants to take your furniture, and as a trustee, I'm going to trust what you tell me. You're going to swear an oath. This is what you have. This is what you think you could sell it for, and if it's less than $4,000, it's an exempt property. You keep it. Um, you know, another category here, and this is really common sense, but needs to go, needs to be said, is your clothing. Yeah. So your clothing, and this includes anything you need for medical purposes, if there's, you know, a CPAP machine or a wheelchair or things like that, obviously that would be completely wrong for you to have to lose medical aids and be completely strange that we got people walking around with no clothes because they're in debt. So the government says unlimited value of clothing and medical aids, nobody loses any of those things if you file for a bankruptcy. Okay, what if I have stocked my um, closet yeah. with expensive clothes. I've had that. I've yeah. had someone who literally had $10,000 of clothing. Sure. They were able to keep everything. Okay. Because yeah, it, it's, it's not hard not hard to do today mm -hmm. if you if you're that way inclined. Okay, good. Yeah. So you don't lose it. Yeah. Um, your vehicle, which can be incredibly important yeah. uh, if you've got children in the home or you've got a job that you have to drive or you're self-employed. We know that mm -hmm. often self-employed people uh, get in pickles uh, quite easily or can depending on circumstances what about my vehicle yeah so your vehicle again almost everybody asks this question because they assume hey if I'm paying off my car and I go into bankruptcy you guys must take that car right the answer is no. no. So if you've got a loan against your car in just about every case, if you want to keep making those payments, you'll just keep making the payments and you'll keep the car. If you own the car outright, you're allowed in bankruptcy to have a vehicle worth up to $5,000. So if you've got a $40,000 car, but there's a $35,000 loan against it, your equity is $5,000 and you're okay. Now, if you've got a car that's worth more than $5,000 and there's no loan against it, that's when typically you'd make an arrangement with the trustee. We'd look at a black book value if it was sold at auction. If it's worth $6,000, you'd pay the extra $1,000 above the exempt value to keep the car during the bankruptcy. Okay. Um, fair enough. Uh, tools of trade, if I am self-employed and, and I need them, regardless of whether it's yeah. uh, sewing machines or, or carpenter tools. Yeah, it could be a scalpel up to a bandsaw, it doesn't matter. Right. It's an exemption up to $10,000. Okay. So government wants you to be able to earn income, you get to keep your tools of the trade. And again, that $10,000 exemption, is that based on the same thing as my Garage furniture is based? Yep. Okay. Craigslist value, it's not replacement cost, it's what could you get if it was sold quickly. Wow, that's really important to remember. RRSPs, I think the this is so important for people to know. I think we might have to cover our RSPs on our next topic. Okay, so don't get rid of them. Don't go cash see, them in and wait for our next segment. <laughs> go, go see Blair, Sands & Associates. Here's the number, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. Check out their website, sands-trustee.com. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Kate Flanders. Now, Kate, a a described former binge consumer turned mindful consumer of everything. And through a lot of personal stories, she wrote about what happens when money, minimalism, and mindfulness, mindfulness cross paths. Kate's story's been shared a lot of places. Oprah.com, Forbes, Yahoo, The Guardian. We're so happy to have you with us, Kate. It's just, oh, I'm really looking forward to this piece. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I just want to mention your blog address, uh, www.kateflanders.com, and Kate is spelt C-A-I-T. Now, Kate wrote a book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. I want to repeat that. Shopping (laughs) ban. Yikes. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish with her three loves, and I love this piece, Mountains, the Forest, and the Ocean. Nothing wrong about that. (laughs) Nothing wrong about that on this beautiful part of the country, for sure. So let's start with some questions about uh, The Year of Less, uh, the the title of the book that you wrote. Um, Often authors will talk about a a specific piece or a specific event or idea or thought that literally propelled them into the idea that I should write this down and it should be a book. How, How did that come about for you? Oh, like the actual book? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest and say that it was actually uh, never part of the plan. Like yeah. I, have, I have been blogging since 2011, and it, um, yeah, it was just never, never part of the plan to write a book. I used to write anonymously. Like when I first started my blog in 2011, I was maxed out with close to thirty thousand dollars of debt, and I wrote anonymously because I didn't want anyone to read it. Mm. Um, that changed over time. Like after I'd paid off the debt, I felt much more comfortable, kind of. Um, using my real name and putting my face on the on the website, but I, um, you know, when I took on the shopping ban, it was still just very much meant to be like kind of a personal experiment that I was going to do. And it wasn't until after I finished it that um, I did an interview with someone I knew um, through a job, like years years before, and we she actually wrote a profile about the piece for Forbes, which she was writing for at the time. And when the day it came out, she sent me an email saying, just FYI, these things have a tendency to go viral. (laughs) And I just thought nothing of it because, I mean, I didn't know Laura well, but I had worked with her for a little while. She was an editor of mine at one point. So I really thought nothing of it. And then within two weeks, I had been contacted by six different literary agents um, with all of them thinking it could be a book. So then I was just really grateful that I had documented (laughs) on the blog. And I think Blair, who I know, I I have not read your book, only because for no other reason than I just haven't, but Blair has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what a gift. Yeah, I was explaining to it to Elaine, I was traveling when I read the book. And, you know, it just really caused me to pause a bunch of times and, you know, ask myself th- those bigger questions about, you know, who am I consuming for? And, you know, what, what's this, this benefit that I'm getting from all the consumption from it from a day to day. But I wonder for sharing with listeners here, Kate, can you tell us, you know, how did you structure structure um, the rules about about the shopping ban? Yeah, so uh, there were basically two or two lists that I wrote. Um, and so the first one was honestly, like just we could call it consumables. Mm-hmm. So things like groceries, um, obviously putting gas in my car. So and okay to buy stuff. Uh, yeah, 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 all this stuff's good to buy. So that stuff's okay. Um, even like going to restaurants sometimes, totally fine. Toiletries, like as you use them up, mm-hmm. totally fine. Like the things that you use often, 
you're allowed to buy like as you need more. So you don't have um, a closet full of toilet paper or paper towels, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? That's not part of this. Yeah, exactly. Hoarding <laughs> paper products. No. Um, and then I wrote the list of things I was not allowed to buy. And that was structured basically from me walking around my home and looking at the stuff I already owned and really just saying like, I have enough of this. So, I found that fascinating. Um, so what were some of the things on, on that list? Yeah, so like clothes, um, shoes, things for around the house, um, books, magazines. Like I just, I had stuff. It's not even that I had a lot. I wouldn't have even sort of, I don't know, even if you'd walked into my home, it's not like it was a totally cluttered mess or anything. Like I just, I had enough. I didn't need more. Um, and then the only caveat to that was that I did write a short list, again, kind of looking ahead, knowing I was doing this for an entire year. Um, and I wrote this short list of a few things I would be allowed to buy throughout the year. And like an example was, um, I had five weddings to attend that year. Okay. And I don't really own the kinds of clothes that I would wear to a wedding. Like I just don't really dress up ever. It's just not who I am. And so I was like, I can buy one outfit, so like one dress, one pair of shoes to wear to all of the weddings. Okay. Um, so some things like that. And you must have bought gifts for these people who got married? Yes. That was also, again, I never wanted the shopping ban to affect other people. Nice. Um, so that was also, that was fine. Yeah, because I guess you were trying to, to prove the point that, you know, the, the purpose of life, not to give away the book, but, you know, a lot of the, the enjoyment is not not what you have to buy, not what you spend money on. Um, so I think one of your, your points there was you could do a shopping ban and actually have a more meaningful life than, you know, have your life suffer for that. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, and I think, like, it, it wasn't, um, or something I really want to say is, like, I don't think buying stuff is bad or spending money is bad. And actually, I would almost really encourage us to, kind of start removing some of the shame around the things that we are buying. Like you guys know personal finance is so personal, so mm -hmm. we can't really judge like what people are spending money on. But I think inside we know personally what we're getting fulfillment out of or not. And sometimes it is stuff like sometimes stuff really helps us with the things that we love. So, or, or you just really like it. And like, if it's in your budget, that's okay. As long as you're using it. I think for me, it was just really realizing I had never question purchases. I just bought stuff thinking it would somehow help me or help my life in some way. And, and I just had to let go of that. Like I really had to learn how to sort of stop buying impulsively or also preemptively, like thinking I'm going to fix something in the future mm. um, and just buy like when I've actually felt a need for something and then, and then knowing it's for the real me and I'm actually going to use it. Is, was there a bit of a process that you went through, like f three questions or four questions that you asked yourself, whether the piece stayed on the list or if you were ac actually in the store and you were tempted to buy it? Like, was there a bit of a process for you with each thing? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I for most things, I just knew, like, if I kind of saw something and or I found myself in a situation where I was thinking of buying something, I could pretty quickly talk myself out of it just being like, you don't need that. Like it's on the list. And I would also consider my blog too, being like, I don't want to have to write a blog post that says I gave in and I oh, responded good. stuff. So <laughs> I'm not going to buy these things because I genuinely don't need it. And I don't want to tell anyone. Right. I'm not going to do it. That's excellent. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I think that having accountability helped. I also think that there were some things like it did come back to, if I had felt a need for it, like, there were a couple things throughout the year that like life happens and you do need things. And it was just really coming to a place of 
learning how to say, like, have I actually felt the need for this? Like, did I walk into the store for this thing? Or is something just making me think? Like, what kind of stories am I telling myself right now to maybe justify it? What about challenges, Uh, challenges that you didn't expect to come up that did? Yeah, so I think the the big one, and and Blair will know this from reading, is that um, so something that I'll just go backwards slightly and just say that something that um, I hadn't thought of before starting the band was that in the same time period that I was paying off my debt, I also stopped drinking. Mm. And I think that I had never really understood how um, how much I used drinking as a coping mechanism for so many things. And then because it wasn't there, it's not that surprising to me that when sort of more personal challenges came up throughout the year of the shopping ban, it made me just want to spend because I knew I wasn't going to drink, but spending feels like the next easiest thing to do. And so I, I thought a lot about it. I went through a breakup that year and thought a lot about buying things that would just make me feel better. Um, and I also found out my parents were getting divorced that year and, that was a very, like, it was just a personal struggle, but in those situations, definitely found myself, or just realized I was a much more emotional consumer than I had ever realized. And I really in, enjoyed re- reading the book, Kate, because it was it was not what I expected, as, as you just alluded to. It was more of a, a personal memoir, and really you fighting through a number of challenges. Um, and, you know, you and I spoke before the segment, but, you know, I quit drinking about four years ago, and I went through a lot of the same type of, um, you know, challenges that, that you were mentioning about. You don't have that as a coping mechanism anymore. Yeah, and it's so, I, I just think it's one of those things that it's not like every person who reads the book needs to have gone through our shared experience, but I think it it really just shows that as, as unfortunate as it is, I think like money and, and all of this stuff, like it's a lot more emotional than we maybe would, would like, <laughs> like yeah. but, it, but it really is. And so there was so much that year that going through this stuff, I really realized I was an emotional consumer. I didn't have alcohol to help me anymore. And so spending just felt like what I, like the, the easiest and, and sometimes doesn't feel that harmful, like in the moment when you're going to make those decisions, because it, you know, there's like science, like it does feel good to spend money sometimes. Mm-hmm. It does feel good, like, but that, that it doesn't help long term and neither did drinking. So. Right. That's really quite something, Kate, that you, that this was, this was your journey that you went through and it started as one thing and evolved into something else. I think that's really, really fascinating. Well, and I think for me now, I sort of look at personal challenges like that in general, like it's, it's um you can never know what the end result is going to be like you just can't and i am actually really glad that i walked into it a little bit blindly and almost like naively of just like oh this is just going to be this year where i my goal is to like spend less and save more sure um and and finish it and like yes i could say that those things were true but it um yeah it it, it did become about so much more than that and i'm so grateful too that i was able to like write the book that agents did see an interest in it and stuff like that because um, it's actually funny. I would say the majority of people wanted it to be more of like a how-to book, mm-hmm. something more of you know I don't know. Here's ten ways to do this. Um, but for me, I was always very adamant. Like if this is going to be a book, it has to be more of a memoir. Like it has to be more personal. I don't want to just write like ten ways to not shop. Like no, I could I could write that in a blog post. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. You have the whole blog that you can that you were able to use to sort of the daily stuff or the weekly stuff that would come up. Uh, so that yeah, that makes good sense, and it just feels so personal. And the cool thing is, and I bet you've experienced this when you've heard from people, is that 
loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people have those same those same thoughts, those same ideas, that those same pauses uh, before either purchasing something or doing something that they know they're just doing to, I don't know, deal with this other thing that has nothing to do with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and like now a common thing I'm hearing from people is one part particular in the book where I just mentioned that I realized I used to buy a lot of things for this more like aspirational version of myself. Uh-huh. The number or like probably one of the most common things I hear from people is I had never realized that until I read that sentence. Excellent. Like that, that is what they were doing too. Very so. good. We've been talking with uh, Kate Flanders, who's written a really interesting book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish, so not very far away. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with uh, with us right now is Stuart Zuckerman. Uh, Stuart is uh, a UBC law grad, and his practice primarily in the area of family law and has been for the past almost 30 years. So in in addition to Stuart's litigation practice, he's also an accredited family law mediator, uh, participates in the collaborative divorce process. And Stuart, I'm pretty sure we could have an interview just on the collaborative uh, divorce process alone, but but we don't get that. We're uh, going to talk about, um, and this is interesting, if you're in the situation where you sense or can feel that your relationship or marriage, depending on the on your situation is breaking down uh, the kinds of things that you need to pay attention to. Yeah, so Stuart, we, we were hoping, um, you know, when someone's thinking that their relationship is going to break down, you know, there's a lot of emotion and people tend to take action sometimes, you know, a little bit rashly and maybe not considering the broader impact. So I wonder if you can share from your experience, because I've definitely seen it in my experience, I've seen both partners, you know, just start, suddenly stop caring about finances and start to run up charges on credit cards. And then, you know, we, we've got to deal with that as a trustee here. But what have you seen in terms of pitfalls when a relationship is breaking down? What are the things to really not do that's going to hurt you later on? Sure. Well, for just the first thing that I would say is the thing to do if you sense your relationship is, is coming to an end or near an end would be to gather as much documentation as you can. That is, make photocopies or take pictures with your phone of, of uh, 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 bank, card, bank statements, of uh, credit card bills, of uh, any financial piece of information, uh, the home title, any documents at home um, that would, uh, for financial disclosure purposes, because some people just don't disclose their finances uh, the way they should. And so getting that information off the top uh, will help uh, secure uh, a more comp- comprehensive solution or settlement at the end. But in terms of pitfalls, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls that, that, that people make. You know, a very common situation is a uh, husband and wife get into a fight, let's call them Mary and John. Um, John get, Mary calls the police, please come and remove John from the home, and a, and a, a peace bond is issued where John is not allowed to return to the home. Um, I can tell you, in 29 years of practice, I've seen 
the Johns in these situations very often uh, will uh, respond by calling BC Hydro and cutting off the hydro, wow. calling uh, uh, Ford is gas, calling, cutting off the gas, cutting off the cable and the internet to the home. They figure, I'm not allowed in the home, I'm not going to pay the bills anymore. And often they were the breadwinner in the home or the major income earner, and the, the spouse, Mary, may have a much lower income or no income um, and may have kids at home. And I've seen guys do that regardless. And I can tell you, when people, when if I have a woman come in to my office and I've had this many times crying in the chair opposite me saying my husband cut off the hydro and the cable, I smile and I say, he's <laughs> given you the greatest gift you could ask for because when I go to court next week and I tell a judge that John cut off the hydro and the, and the cable and the internet for the, when the wife and kids are at home, the judge is going to bend over backwards and say, Mr. Zuckerman, what can I do for you? What do you want me to order? And it's going to help me get higher support numbers and get, get orders that are going to be against the husband. So, so that's a big pitfall for people who, who make that mistake of cutting off hydro cable, cutting off bank accounts, taking money out of bank accounts and, and maybe depositing it into their mother's account or their sister's account because they think they're going to hide the money for division later. That's the worst thing you could do because when I cross-examine that person at a trial later about why they pulled the money out of their account and put it into their sister's name, the, the only answer is that they were trying to hide it from their wife. And now the judge will say this person lacks complete credibility on their financial disclosure and you might get an order where all of the disclosed assets go to one party because the judge believes that there are more value in hidden assets than there are in disclosed assets. And there's many cases where that has occurred. So so it's very important to to not uh, hide assets, to not switch assets over to other uh, things. Everything needs to be disclosed. Full and frank financial disclosure is the cornerstone of, of family law. And we've had cases, there's a case called Kuna and Kuna, where the Court, the court of Appeal said that the, the non-disclosure of, of uh, finances is the cancer um, on matrimonial litigation. And so the courts have a lot of power to cure that cancer, um, including giving everything that has been disclosed to the not to the to the innocent spouse. So it's a big mistake to hide those things. Okay, so let's let's do the flip side of that then. Mary and John are smart, intelligent, bright, caring, thoughtful people. Uh, the children are at home with one of them, and uh, and and yet they know that the marriage is breaking down or the relationship's breaking down. What are the steps to take in that situation? So so everybody, um, I mean, it's a difficult situation, doesn't come out a winner because this is sad regardless, but that that isn't heard in the process. Right. So so the first thing, I mean, as, as a divorce lawyer, we're mandated under the Divorce Act to inform clients about the existence of marriage counselors and their services. So we do recommend people speak to a marriage counselor if they think they might be able to repair the relationship. But assuming that they've already gone past that and they can't repair the relationship, um, that's the time when it's they should both be going out and talking to a lawyer, bringing to the lawyer all of the information about their finances, and trying to negotiate or get advice about negotiating a fair and reasonable uh, separation agreement rather than litigating. So instead of starting a divorce proceeding, you ask your lawyer, you say, look, I want to I want to divorce from I want to divorce and separate from my spouse, but I'd like to do it by way of an agreement. I want to stay out of court. And and then you give all the information to the lawyer, and then the lawyer is able to say, well, this is what your rights and your entitlements are in terms of those assets. This is how the court would divide those assets. So let's write a letter to John um, and say, you know, dear John, here's what we propose for a settlement, a separation agreement. And if John then goes to his lawyer and gets advice, and the lawyer says, yes, this is pretty much what's going to happen. This is the correct level of child support. This is the correct level of spousal support. We might negotiate the duration of spousal support or the quantum, the amount of spousal support, um, how long it's going to last, etc. Uh, and you put all the, you write all those things up in an agreement and, and a separation agreement. If you come, if a client comes to me and they 
and they know uh, after my first meeting exactly what they want to do in terms of a separation agreement, we can do that for as little as about uh, $3,500 from start to finish when we're not involved in extensive negotiations with the other party. When you're negotiating, that will add because we charge for the hours that are spent. So negotiating adds more cost to the to the bottom line. But but the, a basic separation agreement uh, prepared by a lawyer is about 3500 bucks. Uh, an uncontested divorce, if you just wanted a divorce order that, that doesn't deal with any aspect since her children just says the parties are divorced, uh, that can be done for as little as $1,500. On the other end of the scale, if you went to court, I was going to ask you that. These sound like bargains compared to, you know, an average rate in a court, right? Yes, I I would say, you know, in my experience, most uh, trials last at least five days uh, in Supreme Court. And when you're in court, you only really get four hours and 15 minutes in front of the judge um, every day because there's breaks when you're in court. So it's not a lot of time in five days. But in five days, you could do a typical divorce case. And that that would cost with a senior lawyer probably anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, with a junior wow. lawyer somewhere from forty to sixty thousand dollars to prepare for and conduct those five days of trial. So, for a one-week trial, you you could be in the six figures, and I I know it's real because I've seen it. I've seen uh, both sides, husbands and wives, comes in with you know big legal bills that essentially they they've you know dissipated a bunch of family assets, um, you know, just by fighting and not you know trying to make an agreement early on. There may be other factors there, but yeah, the costs really do escalate quickly. The, the, the last five-day trial I did was eight, my bill was eighty-nine thousand dollars. So, I'm, and I heard that the opposing lawyer's bill was something like one hundred and twenty thousand. So, it is you know a, tr- a one-week trial is easily close to six figures. With, with a senior lawyer, I mean, I'm a lawyer with 29 years experience. I have eight lawyers at my firm that are junior to me. So, you know, if you've hired one of our first year or fifth year lawyers who's directed by me, you're, you're, it's a much lower expense, less than half of the cost for, for a senior lawyer. Stuart, have you got, and, and we're just sort of, we've got like about a minute and a half or so to go. I was curious about the percentage. Is there a clear percentage in your mind of, of what uh, the choice people are making now, like uh, a trial versus a uh, figure Figuring out uh, more collaboratively to yeah, well, yeah. Everybody is. If you have a good lawyer, the lawyer will explain well in advance what the costs of a trial are, and when you factor in those costs of a trial, that helps in the settlement because you know even if you're getting, for example, if someone made an offer to settle on the other side and it's fifty thousand less than you're entitled to, but I'm going to charge you a hundred thousand to run a trial, yeah. I might say to you, you know, you might be better off taking their offer um, at the at the lower number rather than paying me a hundred thousand to end up with, you know, fifty thousand more. You're not going to net the same. So, um, so. It, the, the reality is that about 95% of cases settle without going to trial. I had a week trial scheduled for this very week that I'm sitting here, and we settled on Friday afternoon at 6 p.m. Um, so uh, with negotiations going back and forth, uh, sure. and we finally put a deadline on our last offer on Friday afternoon at 4. We said, if you don't accept it by 6, we're, we're going to proceed to trial, and they accepted our offer by 6 o'clock. So, so, and that happens in, in 95% of cases that people settle. I've actually, in my years of experience, I've settled on the courthouse doors at, right outside the courtroom when we were about to go in at 10 o'clock in the morning, I've had the other lawyer pull me aside and make an offer that my client has accepted. So so people try to avoid trial and, and settle before trial because of the cost of a trial. If you want to get a hold of Stuart, I'll give you his website. It's www.zuckermanlaw.ca, Z-U-K-E-R, manlaw.ca. Thank you so much for joining us. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.